Good morning. Today's reading is from Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He was approaching the Ancient of Days, and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations, all nations and people of every language worshipped him. His domination is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Thank you, Paige, for reading God's word for us this morning. So I want you to uh, tell me if this scenario sounds familiar. Uh, You have a society that's divided into diehard factions that seem uh, to do little but shout across the aisle at each other. You have a self-congratulatory rhetoric of freedom and openness that actually thinly veils an authoritarian demand of reverence to the idols of our age. You have political and economic forces that uh, all come together to sustain a lifestyle for only the elite. And you have a society that assures itself that it has moved past superstition and faith and now lives on the right side of history, but is itself riddled with superstition and assumptions of its own. Now, that is not a description of the United States of America today, though it might (laughs) sound like it to many of us. Uh, This is instead a description of 5th century Rome through the eyes of the early church father uh, who goes by the name of Augustine. Now, in one of what is uh, one of the best books on social and political theory, Augustine critiques the culture of Rome as overly complex, divided, tottering on the brink of destruction, and contradicting itself. Now, there are many comparisons that we could draw between our nation today and 5th century Rome. Now here is Augustine's guide for how we can critique the culture in which we live. Augustine would say to live in, in the society that we are critiquing so that we can know it and know it well and know the people who live in the culture. Augustine would say to critique the whole culture, not just the parts that we might disagree with. Augustine would say to critique using the whole Bible and not just using the parts of the Bible which we like. Augustine would say to look at what's under the surface and to try and find the heart issues that are driving the problems that we see in the culture. Augustine would say to reject the extremes. Overcorrecting in either direction uh, is harmful. And Augustine would say, finally, to build up the church uh, to fight against outside influence from the culture at large. Now, this is a pretty complex book, and it's hard to summarize it (laughs) in such a short amount of time. Uh, But the reason that Augustine can critique the culture in the way that he does is because, well, he has a better city than Rome to compare Rome to. There is a standard in which Rome is not living up to. Augustine knows that there is a heavenly city that is coming. A heavenly city in which all wrongs will be made right, and everything that is crooked 
will be made straight. Augustine also knows that the city that is here now, uh, that city is here now, because as Jesus has said, as we've seen throughout our series in the book of Matthew, the kingdom of heaven has come near. But since the kingdom of heaven has come near, and the kingdom of heaven has not come in its fruition, in an ultimate way, there is an intertwining that has happened between the earthly and the heavenly city. And sometimes it's hard to tell which is which, right? This points us back to the parable of the weeds and the wheat that we looked at a couple weeks ago. Now, all of us are aware that uh, we don't necessarily live in a city, right? This is kind of a rural area where you either live in the suburbs or we live um, close to some farmland. But the idea of a city can be thought of as just, well, this is the place in which we live. Now, all of us are also aware of the fact that the cities in which we live are very different from this heavenly city that I just described. Even seemingly Christian places like Lancaster County, in which we live, are still not perfect, still tainted by sin, still have problems of their own. Now, in today's passage, and here's where it connects, Jesus will enter into the earthly city of Jerusalem. And what Jesus will find in Jerusalem looks very different from the heavenly city that he has said has come near. We will look at the different things that are wrong that Jesus says and points to. So let me pray for us this morning, uh, and then we'll take a look at our passage of Scripture. Let's pray. Father, that awareness that the places in which we live are not perfect uh, is certainly uh, present in our lives. God, often we cry out to you and we wonder what is going on in our world and we wish, God, that your heavenly city um, would come in its fruition. Father, we wish that that passage in Daniel that Paige read for us, uh, we wish that Jesus would come back. And Father, that is a good wish. Uh, But help us this morning as we look at your word uh, to figure out ways to live in the here and now as we anticipate the heavenly city that is to come. Father, help us as people to help the places in which we live look more like the heavenly city. May you accomplish that through your word this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Matthew chapter 21. That's where we'll be spending our time together this morning. Uh, If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one in the pew in front of you. I encourage you to grab one of those to follow along with us. If you're using a church Bible, uh, Matthew chapter 21 is on page 697. uh, So that'll help you flip there. Now we'll be looking at all of chapter 21 this morning. uh, And I've split chapter 21 up into three parts. These are our three sections for this morning. Uh, First, we'll talk about the king's arrival in verses 1 through 17. We'll talk about the king's authority in verses 18 through 27. And finally, uh, the king's analogies in verses 28 through 46. Hope you enjoy that alliteration this morning. Let me read that first section for us, verses 1 through 17. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, 
Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there, with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say to daughter Zion, see, your king comes to you, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the temple, the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying, they asked him? Yes, replied Jesus. Have you never read? From the lips of children and infants, you, Lord, have called forth your praise. And he left them and went out to the city, to Bethany, where he spent the night. I'll pause uh, reading for us there. So as we've seen from Jesus, his disciples and uh, his gang of followers, they continue to travel. Uh, But now they have arrived at what is really their destination. Here we see Jerusalem, the Jewish capital, the holy city, a place filled with history and filled also with religious fervor. Now here in Jerusalem is the home of the temple, uh, the place where Jewish worship was held, uh, where God's presence resided in the Holy of Holies, in the innermost part of the temple. Now, this is a passage that we normally look at around Easter time, so uh, you might be a little confused this morning because there are changing colors of leaves on the trees, (laughs) and it's not springtime. Um, This story is what's known as the triumphal entry. So as Jesus approaches Jerusalem, he realizes that this is a pretty big moment. The King of Kings, the Son of God, has now arrived at what is really his city. I actually don't like the name triumphal entry very much, because though this is a triumphal entry, when we hear that word, we think of pomp and circumstance, and yes, there's a crowd around Jesus that is shouting and celebrating, uh, but Jesus enters into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. Now, we would expect Jesus to arrive in the city on the back of a horse, Right, Not just any horse, but the biggest, the best, the strongest horse that one could find. Instead, Jesus enters into Jerusalem on what is a lowly farm animal. 
Now, Jesus does this to fulfill what was said would happen in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. That's the, the passage that is quoted there. That the king would come to Zion gentle and riding on a donkey. Jesus has shown himself to be the first part of that. He has shown himself to be gentle. He has not won any big military battle that he deserves to enter into Jerusalem as the victorious king. He has not defeated the Romans in any sense that he has now delivered Jerusalem from uh, its slavery to Rome. Instead, Jesus has won battles over Satan himself in the wilderness. He has won battles over disease and over demons as he has healed. And he has also won many verbal altercations with the Pharisees. Now, the reason that this is a triumphal entry is more because of what Jesus would go on to do in Jerusalem. That he would win the battle over sin and death itself on the cross when he sacrificed himself for the sins of the world and when he rose again in three days. But that has not happened quite yet. So the crowd that welcomes Jesus into Jerusalem. They do respond correctly in some ways. They spread cloaks and palms on the ground so that Jesus and his donkey don't have to walk on the dirt. They acknowledge who he is. They begin to shout Hosanna, which means to save. So not only do they recognize who Jesus is, but they also recognize that he has come to save them. Now the problem is that their idea of what salvation is looks vastly different from what Jesus has actually come to do. So Jerusalem at this time was occupied by Roman forces. So its people are being oppressed. Right? They're always battling against the Romans who are lording it over them. When Jesus arrives in Jerusalem as king, they think they're going to be saved from the Romans. They think that this king is going to be a great military king or a great political king like David or like Solomon before him. This is not the kind of king that Jesus would be. As we've seen throughout the book of Matthew, when Jesus has said that the kingdom of heaven has come near, he has in mind an entirely different kind of kingdom. That kingdom has a entirely different kind of king. See, Jerusalem does not need another king like David or like Solomon who would rule their earthly city. Jerusalem needs the king of kings who rules the heavenly city and who has come to bring the heavenly city to the earthly city. What Jerusalem needs is someone who will set them free from their sin and who will heal the separation they have between them and God. In the United States of America today, we do not need another earthly king who will win great military or political battles for us. Who we need is Jesus, the king of the heavenly city. Now, we do not worship Jesus because of what we think he should do for us or what we want him to do for us. We worship him because of what he has done for us and what he will do for us when he returns, as prophesied in the book of Daniel. So Jesus' entry into Jerusalem causes many people to wonder, who is this? It's a pretty good question. 
The crowd answers, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth, Nazareth in Galilee. So they get his name right. They get it right that he is a prophet. They get it right where he is from. But notice how their answer is different from Peter's answer that we looked at a couple chapters ago. Peter said that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the living God. And so when Jesus gets to the temple in Jerusalem, because he is the Messiah, the son of the living God, he shows that he is not just a prophet, but that he has authority because he is the son of the living God. And so because he is the son of the living God, he's outraged by what he finds going on in the temple. The Jewish people have taken what was supposed to be holy, what was supposed to be a place of worship, and they have defiled it. Now this was Jesus' father's house. The Jewish people have turned it into their own house, a place for them to profit from their own personal gain. And so Jesus begins to flip tables, right? This is the famous table-flipping passage from Jesus, right? This is pretty well known. And he's right to flip the tables. His anger is righteous, and his zeal for his father's house is a good thing. But that is because Jesus is perfect. Jesus can be angry without sinning. Now, sometimes we like to use this passage to justify our own anger against the things that we think uh, people have done to defile God's house. Now, we need to be very careful with that because we are not perfect. And our anger is always tainted by our sin. We also tend to miss what Jesus does after he flips the tables. The blind and the lame, we read, come to Jesus and he heals them. So not only does Jesus undo the unrighteousness that he finds in the temple, he also goes on to restore the temple to its proper purpose, a place where the people of God could come to be in the presence of God and to receive healing. Now, because Jesus is here, people will actually no longer need to go to the temple to get to God. Instead, people will only need to go to Jesus to get to God. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Because Jesus defeated death on the cross and rose again in three days, he has also sent the Holy Spirit to live in our hearts. Because of this, our bodies are now temples, in a way. God's presence now resides in our hearts. The way that Jesus reacts in the temple, Jesus reacts when we take ourselves. What God has made to be holy, and we make it something else. When we use ourselves for our own personal gain, for our own glory, when we sin, we make the same mistake that the Jewish people make with their temple. Jesus, not only does he have righteous anger at our corruption of God's good creation, he also has worked to undo that corruption in our hearts. He washes us clean by his blood. He restores us to our proper purpose. Now, it's easy to look at this passage and to think about all of the tables that Jesus needs to overturn in the world around us, all the tables that Jesus needs to overturn in the church, in our country. But we also need to look inside. If we are temples, then what tables does Jesus need to overturn 
in my own heart? What have I defiled that God has declared holy? What has God designated for a specific purpose that I have twisted and used for myself? Now, Jesus' righteous anger is never just to condemn, right? His righteous anger is always to return us to our proper purpose. That purpose is to glorify him. Now, we continue to see the authority of Jesus on full display in the next section. Let me read uh, those verses, verses 18 through 27 for us. Early in the morning, as Jesus was on his way back to the city, he was hungry. Seeing a fig tree by the road, he went up to it, but found nothing on it except leaves. Then he said to it, may you never bear fruit again. Immediately the tree withered. When the disciples saw this, they were amazed. How did the fig tree wither so quickly? They asked. Jesus replied, truly I tell you, If you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what was done to the fig tree, but also you can say to this mountain, go, throw yourself into the sea and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. Jesus entered the temple courts and while he was teaching, the chief priests and the elders came to him. By what authority are you doing these things? They asked. And who gave you this authority? Jesus replied, I will, ask, I will also ask you one question. If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I am doing these things. John's baptism, where did it come from? Was it from heaven or of human origin? They discussed it among themselves and said, Well, if we say from heaven, he will ask, then why didn't you believe in him? But if we say of human origin, we are afraid of the people, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. Then he said, neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. So Jesus has left the city of Jerusalem for the night. Now he's coming back into the city. And in what seems to be an uncharacteristic moment of rage from Jesus, he takes it out on a fig tree by the side of the road that doesn't have any fruit. Now, Jesus just seems to be completely going off the rails here in this chapter, (laughs) right? What is going on, right? This would be like today if I came across an empty vending machine and cursed it, and then it just, you know, kind of toppled over. The disciples, they seem to be surprised by uh, this side of Jesus too. Now, Jesus hasn't changed at all. He also hasn't sinned. And so this story, it's not really about the fig tree. This story is a continuation of Jesus' righteous anger that we saw in the last section. The fig tree is really a representation of the Jewish people. They were supposed to be God's chosen people. They were supposed to be the hope of the world. They were supposed to be bearing fruit. But Jesus finds them fruitless. So the authority that Jesus has to curse this fig tree, Jesus says, can be available to the disciples. Now, this isn't a license for us to go around cursing plants that we find that don't have fruit on them. 
The point of this is that if the disciples have faith and rid themselves of doubt, they can do much more than just cursing a fruitless fig tree. Jesus says they can move mountains. Whatever they ask for in prayer, it will be given to them. That's something that we have already looked at in our prayer time this morning. Faith and trust in the authority that Jesus has gives us that same authority. But with great authority comes great responsibility. That responsibility is that we are not to be like the fig tree. We are supposed to use Jesus' authority to bear fruit in our lives. Now Jesus arrives back at the temple, and we see him begin to teach the people that are there. Now that he has cleared out the temple, Jesus wants to fill the temple with the truth about who his father is. Now the chief priests, they come to Jesus and they begin to question him. They want to know by what authority does Jesus have to flip the tables in the temple, to curse a fig tree by the side of the road? By what authority are you doing these things? Now Jesus catches them in their faulty logic. He responds to their question with a question, as Jesus often does. He asks them where John's baptism came from from heaven or from humans. It's really a perfect response to the Pharisees because it traps them. They can't say that John's baptism was from heaven because if it was, then it would have been from God and they supposedly believe in God. So if they went against John, which they did, then they have also gone against God. They also can't say that John's baptism was from human authority because if it was, then they're going against the people who uh, clearly believe that John was a prophet sent by God. So either the Pharisees go against God here or they go against the people. And so they say they don't know, though really I think that they do know. Here we have the answer to Jesus' question. His authority comes from God. The Pharisees just don't want to accept that. So clearly, there is a right and a wrong here. Jesus' authority to do these things had to have come from somewhere. This response from the Pharisees is the same response that many of us are faced with today. Will I accept Jesus' authority as being sent from God, the very Son of God, or will I reject him? Now, Jesus goes on to illustrate what that decision looks like with two parables, and that's our next section for this morning. Uh, Let me read our last uh, section, verses 28 through 46. What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, Son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, I will, sir, but he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? The first, they answered. Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to show you the way of righteousness and you did not believe in him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. 
He put a wall around it, dug a deep wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenants seized his servants. They beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them, more than the first time, and the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes. When the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these tenants? He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied. And he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. They looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. Two pretty grim parables from Jesus. The first of those parables is about a man who had two sons. Pretty similar to the parable of the vineyard that we talked about last week, a father goes and tells his first son to work in the vineyard. The first son refuses, then later ends up going. The second son agrees to go, but doesn't end up going. Jesus asks the question, well, which one obeyed his father in the end? Clearly, the first one who actually did what the father said to do. Now, those of us who are parents in the room wish that Jesus mentioned the third son who agrees to go in the first place and also goes and does what the father has asked to do. <laughs> now, that son wasn't mentioned. Now, Jesus in this parable is setting up uh, what is really a contrast between those that the Pharisees have rejected and the Pharisees themselves. John came to show all of them the way, the tax collectors and the prostitutes, they repented and they believed in John despite their way of life. The Pharisees, they rejected John. And so the tax collectors and the prostitutes are like the first son, who were at first not listening to what God has said to do, but later, now that John the Baptist and Jesus have come, they have repented, turned their lives around, and begun to follow them. Now the Pharisees, are like the second son in the story. The sons who were listening to what God had said to them, but later, now that John the Baptist and Jesus have come to them, they are now not doing what God has said to do. Like we saw last week, God has called all to come and to work in his vineyard, his vineyard which is the kingdom of heaven itself. This parable tells us that it is not enough to merely say that we will go and work in the vineyard. We must actually do it. Now, Jesus' second parable paints an even more grim picture for the Pharisees. 
Once again, we have the same landowner with a vineyard. This time, the landowner rents the vineyard to some tenants and then goes away. Now, in what is really a heartbreaking story, he sends the first wave of servants to go and to collect the fruit from the vineyard. But the tenants, well, they beat one, they kill another, and they stone the third. The landowner sends more servants back. The tenants do the exact same thing. Finally, the landowner sends his own son to the vineyard. Surely they will respect my son. Surely they will listen to him. Surely they won't beat him, kill him, or stone him like they did to the others. But the tenants, they see this as their opportunity to take over the vineyard for good. This man, he will go on to inherit the vineyard. He will eventually take all that is ours now from us, and so we must kill him, and they do kill him. It's a heartbreaking story. So Jesus asks the Pharisees that are there before him, what will the owner of the vineyard do when uh, he comes back? He says he will bring those wretches to a wretched end. The Pharisees condemn themselves in this story. They recognize that what the tenants have done to the son and to the servants in this story is terrible. And the Pharisees, they feel justified in their judgment of those tenants until they realize that they are the tenants in the story. They are the ones who have been temporarily inhabiting the land of Israel and the holy city of Jerusalem. They are the ones who have rejected the servants that God has sent to them, the prophets, they are the ones who will go on to reject Jesus, the Son of God, and they will kill him, the very one who has come to save them. Now, because they think that their killing of Jesus will mean that they will get to hang on to all that has been given to them, but they could not be more wrong. Instead, all that has been given to them will be given to another. As Jesus says, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, and what would go on to be the Gentiles, those who have repented and those who have begun to follow Jesus. So Jesus, he reads them a little bit of scripture to remind them that this was supposed to happen. Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23, the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this. It is marvelous in our eyes. And so Jesus, he tells the Pharisees straight out, right? The kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to those who produce its fruit. Those who are not like the, the fruitless fig tree that Jesus cursed earlier in the passage. See, this is the beginning of the end for Jesus. With these words, he has ignited a fire amongst the Pharisees that will not be put out until uh, he has been killed. He has just told them that the God that they claim to love and to serve will reject them. He has just told them that they will lose the stranglehold that they hold on Jewish society, which they would. This is too much for them to bear. They know that Jesus is talking about them, and they know that they must find a way to get rid of Jesus. Now, Jesus Christ, as he says, is the cornerstone. 
cornerstone being the most essential piece of the foundation. Jesus was the first, and he is what is still holding it all together. If he is rejected, if the cornerstone is removed, then the whole thing falls apart. But that's okay if this current Jewish society falls apart because this rejected cornerstone would become the foundation for a new kind of kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. Now that the cornerstone has been removed, it is still there. The people that are walking by, well, they're stumbling over it. There's really no getting rid of the cornerstone. People must still get over it somehow. Now our job, in light of this passage, is to help people to not stumble over Jesus. As Jesus says in verse 44, anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. Jesus is the king who has come, and all must make their decision. Will I accept him, or will I reject him? Jesus can either be the stone that breaks, the stone that crushes, or Jesus can be the stone on which a life is built. As Jesus has said, the tax collectors and the prostitutes, well, they get to come first. Even if you have said no to the Father in the beginning, you can still do what he says and come and work in his vineyard. Now, a reminder of the parable of the tenants is that As Paige read for us, Jesus is coming back. What kind of tenants will we be when Jesus comes back? When the kingdom of heaven comes to the earth in its fruition? Will we repent and believe in the one who has been sent to save us? Let me pray for us as we close this morning. Father, we thank you that in the midst of this entire chapter, we see the truth about who Jesus is. We see that he cares for us. He cares for his father's house. He cares for those who have been rejected by society. May we be reminded today that Jesus is the cornerstone the cornerstone of the church. May he be the cornerstone of our lives as well. God, may we be good tenants of what you have given to us in this world. And we look forward to when Jesus will come back. May we help others who are stumbling over Jesus to accept the truth about him. the truth that gives us life and life to the fullest. So thank you, God. Thank you that we have accepted Jesus as the cornerstone. May we not reject him. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.